Good evening. Good to see you guys here tonight. If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Matthew. If you need a Bible, there's a couple there on the table. You can go ahead and grab one there. This is our first study in the Gospel according to Matthew. We just finished Judges. Thank you, Michael. Great job you did with that. So now we're going to begin the Gospel uh, according to Matthew. And I'm excited to begin this series. I'm excited to step into one of the Gospels. We actually, when Genesis first started and going through our Bible studies, we started through the Gospel of Luke back in John's house way back when. Uh, three years or so ago, probably a little bit more. Um, and I think it's always important to get back into a gospel because after all, this is who it's all about, is the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to remember is everything that we do and everything that we look at in scripture is filtered through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's real important that we recognize and remember that. It's how we interpret the scriptures is through the person of Christ. How we interpret the epistles is through the person of Christ. And so as we remember these things and we go through that, we have to, once again, just kind of hone in on who it is that we believe and what it is we believe through this person. The French critic and philosopher Ernest Renan said that the Gospel of Matthew is the most important book which has ever been written. Think about that. The most important book that has ever been written. Now, you might have a disagreement with that. I'm sure some people do. But as far as us as followers of Christ, the Gospel of Matthew has the most insight into the person of Jesus Christ. It gives us the most dialogue with the person of Jesus Christ. It was written to the Hebrews, the Israeli people overall, but we have so much that we're going to get from that. And the amount of material that's found concerning Jesus in this book can't be compared to anything else. And so if this is the most important book that has ever been written, it kind of gets your hopes up, doesn't it? It's like, wow, this could be really good. Well, I hope it is. I hope it is for all of us. I hope we are able to come out of this time and through this study with so many riches that our lives are just benefited from that it will reflect who Jesus is in our own lives. And that's our desire is for these things to definitely take a part of our own life. Now, gospel, the word gospel what is your definition? What do you think of when you think of the word gospel? Okay, and you guys have to chime in. This is going to be important. Throw out a word. The words. Goodness, the words. That covers it, I guess. Okay. Truth. Okay. I want you to think as we're going through this book. This is the gospel according to Matthew. Everything that is written here should be considered gospel. Everything. From the beginning as we're going to look at the birth of Christ to the end, the resurrection of Christ, and all his teachings throughout and all the things concerning Jesus are to be considered gospel. The word gospel 
in the Greek is evangelion. It, it's where we get our word evangelism from. It, it has a tendency to mean good news if we were to just give a direct interpretation. But a lot of times what has happened in Christendom is it has been reduced to good news concerning salvation. The gospel is Jesus died for our sins. And so that is the focus. And of course, that's great news. That is good news. But gospel means a whole lot more than just Jesus dying for our sin. And we want to look at that. In fact, one of the things we're going to be asking ourselves throughout this book is, how is this gospel? How is this good news? How is this something that is supposed to be a benefit to us? And we're going to ask that question as we're going through this book so that we can, again, look into depth of what that means and what it means to us. Now, Matthew, we know, is one of the disciples. We know from the scriptures that he was a, a Levite. He's actually called Levi in some of the Gospels. We also know that he was a tax collector or a publican. This was actually penned, and it varies as some have dated it as early as around 40 AD, others more 60 AD. But we know it was written early on in the first century, and we know that there are literally thousands of manuscripts of this Gospel that have dated back to the early church, and this was something that was passed out. It doesn't say at the end this was written by Matthew, but the church and the early church has its history that Matthew is the one who penned this gospel. The same with the other gospels, Mark, Luke, and John. It is church history that those are the people who actually wrote these things, and we know that Matthew was one of those who walked with Jesus, who heard Jesus' voice. And though he gleaned a lot of these things we are going to see from the Gospel of Mark, he was an eyewitness to these things and embellished on these things even further. Now, to get a full, I guess, appreciation for what Jesus does to people is to look at who Matthew was before he came and started following Christ. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated by the Jewish people. Interesting that now Matthew is writing the gospel that is primarily directed towards the Jewish people. The reason they were hated by the Jewish people is because what the tax collector just did was they collected money for Rome. Rome was the oppressive government over the Hebrew people. And so the Hebrew people did not like Rome. They were over them. They were asserting their sel themselves over the Jewish people and there was constant struggle between things that the Hebrews wanted to do and how they wanted to worship and Rome and what they demanded from them as worship. And so here you have this Jewish person who is working for this oppressive Roman government and what he would do is Rome would say, we want so much money from so many people. And so Matthew's job was to go to the people and say, hey, you owe Rome this much money, and you have to pay. If you don't pay, you're going to jail, and it ain't going to be pretty. And so they hated them because of that. But not only that, is to get money, he, the way he earned his money was to add money on top of that. And so you owe the Roman government this much, this much denarii or whatever it is, but... I'm going to add a little bit more because I want a new jet ski or whatever. 
I want something for myself. I want a, a new patio. I want a new donkey. I want, you know, whatever it is that he wanted. And the tax collectors were very well-to-do. But they were well-to-do off the money of their own people that they were collecting for the Roman people. This was the IRS in a very negative way. And IRS is already negative. When I say IRS, you can say boo. <laughs> and so here is Matthew, the tax collector, working for the Roman government, fleecing the people of God for his own gain. And Jesus asks him to be one of his followers. And we'll get into more of this a little bit, what it means to be a follower of Christ. But not only was Matthew one of Jesus' followers, Jesus was very diverse. He called another person named Simon, Simon Zelotes, Simon the Zealot, we call him. The Zealots were anti-Rome. The Zealots were the terrorists of the day. They would do anything and everything to be subversive to the Roman government. Rome was their enemy, and they were out to get Rome at all costs. And so can you imagine Jesus calls Simon to come and be his follower? Simon says, yes, we're going to start a revolution. All right, I'm in with you, Jesus. And then Jesus says, and you, Matthew, I want you in with me. Simon's go, what? Not him. Matthew comes in, what? Him? I'm telling you, there's a movie to be written about these two walking with Jesus and the change that happens, how what was most important to their lives at one point changed into who became most important in their lives later on, the person of Jesus. And when how Jesus becomes most important, people who are on extreme ends of life come to a place where they see what is most important and are able to live together. Powerful, powerful. The movie has to be written. It has to be. That's your task. <laughs> and so this is who we're reading from. This is the history of who Matthew is. And now we're going to start reading, and it goes into the genealogy of Jesus. Now this is going to be fun. The genealogy... The record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, when it says Jesus Christ, we have already a hint of what Matthew is at, because Christ is a title. It's not his last name. For years, I thought Jesus Christ, Jesus was his first name. Christ was his last name. Jesus Christ, Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. And that's exactly what it means. It means anointed one. Anointed in what ways? Anointed to be the the leader of the people of Israel. And so the identification is immediately. It's identified also as not only the Christ, but the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's targeting who he's talking to. The son of David. David, it was promised, was going to have someone on his throne forever. And they knew it was to be the Messiah. Abraham, it was through him that all the world would be blessed. It was through his seed, it said in Genesis chapter 22, that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Paul goes on later on in Galatians chapter 3 to expound on that more, and it says, through his seed, singular. It wasn't through multiple, it was something specific. It was through one person, 
It was the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, those who were anointed usually are priests, those from the tribe of Levite. They were anointed to be priests. Kings were anointed and prophets were anointed. And Jesus fulfills all of those roles. He is prophet, priest, and king. And so he is the anointed one, the one that was promised for, that they waited for, promised Messiah, all the way from Abraham through David. And so we see that the good news, the gospel, begins in the story of the Hebrew people. And this is really important because there is context to who Jesus is. It's not that just all of a sudden, bam, hey man, here's this guy, he's really cool. Yeah, his name is Jesus and he's telling us all this neat stuff. Yeah, I think he's Messiah, I think he's the Son of God. That's not how it starts. It starts with a promise that God gave early on to his people, people who he called by his name, Abraham, drawn out from the Chaldees. This is God having a covenant with this man and establishing a relationship where he would show him his laws, give him uh, rules to govern this people by, that would give him a promise that I'm going to raise up from you, from your seed, the Messiah, the anointed one. And so there is context, there is history on who Jesus is and what he is connected to. And this is real important to the gospel story. It's real important that we have this narrative, this context that we are building from. Because if we don't have this, then we're open to all kinds of problems. But it is the anointed one, Jesus, that he talks about. In verse 2 it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah. And his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. I'm going to have a lot of fun through all these. Aminadab, the father of Nehishan. Nehishan, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, some of these names are familiar. Rahab we saw in Joshua. We know she was Rahab the harlot. Boaz, the father of Obed. We know again, Boaz, we hear his number, whose mother was Ruth. There we have Boaz, how it connects. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, this is interesting because now we know he, we connect him not only from Abraham, but here he is to David. And David talks about David, Solomon's son, who had been Uriah's wife. Now, who remembers the story of Uriah and what happened with David? What happened? David had an affair. Go ahead, we could say it. That's the scripture. I, mean, was, I know this is Bible study and all, but yeah, there was that affair and... It was had Uriah killed, right? David had Uriah killed. Isn't it interesting that the scriptures still give this place for Uriah? Even though he had nothing to do with the lineage from who Christ was, it seems like there is this place of justice where God says, Uriah, remember Uriah? He was originally her husband. And so... That has this place. Solomon's mother had originally been Uriah's wife. Yes, Bathsheba. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. 
Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, who jumped. No, uh, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeram. Jeram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the son of father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So from here, from verse 7 basically on to 11, here we have the names of the different kings that were there throughout Israel's period. And so again, there's times when there are memories of just kind of reading, oh, that name sounds familiar, of course, the popular one, Solomon, uh, but there's all these others who you can read about through the kings. Verse 12, it goes on and it says, now here's some names that take place through the exile when Israel was exiled into Babylon. After the exile to Bob Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shethetiel, and Shethetiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abudid, and Abudid the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azar, Azar the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Okay, a couple of things we're going to talk about. First, why is this so important? Why is this genealogy here? Luke has another genealogy that goes back to Adam. But why is genealogy so important? Again, this is gospel. This is good news. Why this is so important is because God keeps his promises. Think about that and let me say it again. God keeps his promises. God had promised from the very beginning that there would be a seed born who would crush the serpent. He promised that in the garden. God promised Abraham that there would be a seed that would be a descendant of his through which all the nations would be blessed. God promised again to David that one of his descendants would be on the throne forever. God keeps his promises, and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of God. He is the promise of God throughout the centuries. And so it is important because what God said has come to pass in the person of Jesus Christ. It's also important because the Messiah had to have this lineage. He had to be from these descendants. Now, you know what happened shortly after Matthew penned this gospel? Rome came in and devastated the temple and all the records that were in the temple. They were destroyed. That means after the temple was destroyed, there was now no way to guarantee who was actually a descendant of Abraham or David. There was no way to guarantee who was actually of that lineage, of the promise. And so now if someone comes up today and says, oh, you know, I'm of, I am the Christ, I am the new Messiah. Well, you have to be of this lineage. Can you prove your lineage? Well, no, because it was destroyed back in the day. And it's almost as if God just said, okay, Messiah's here, let's wipe the slate clean. 
I heard a joke today. My daughter told me, it says, you know, there was a small earthquake. Didn't do any damage except the Etch-a-Sketch Museum was totally ruined. <laughs> the Etch-a-Sketch, you know, shake it. Well, it's almost as if God just kind of went, I'm going to write this slate clean, and now we know the lineage up to this point after this. I don't need to know it anymore. What was important is important, and it was important to who? And so here it is. Jesus, the Messiah. Another thing that I want to point out is at the end here in verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So it doesn't say that Jesus was the son of Joseph. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Christ. Why is this important? Because Christ was born of a virgin. Which goes back to the, again, promise in Genesis, when Genesis, God says to Eve, out of thy seed, the one who was going to crush the serpent was to be born. Well, a woman doesn't have a seed. That's from a man. Speaking of the virgin birth. Why is this gospel? Because this is, again, the promise of something miraculous that is going to be taking place. This is something that is promised by God from the very beginning of creation when the fall took place that the Messiah was going to be born and was going to be born unique. And so the gospel has history. It has roots in the Jewish scripture. It has roots in the Jewish lineage. It has that history that we now are able to look at and says, this is the context for whom Jesus was born. And it's real important that we remember this context as we go on throughout and see who Jesus is talking to and how it connects to them, the Jewish people, as well as to us. Verse 17, it says, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from exile to, to, to Christ. We start seeing this kind of real methodical way of writing. You know, I don't know if any of you are people of CPAs or people who have to keep numbers. But there's a certain mindset that comes about with these bean county counters, you know? They're just meticulous at certain things. They keep records and they always want records kept. Well, you know, this is, you got to keep these records and you have to make sure this is this and this is that and everything has to be just right. Well, a tax collector had to be that. He had to keep records of all the people. He had to have a good list of the people because that's how he collected his money. And all of a sudden, now he's using all these things that have been a part of his life to keep the records that were given him to point to Jesus Christ. I just think it's interesting because he's very thorough in a lot of his writing because he's a tax collector. That's just how I used to be. So it shows up in his writing. Now, verse 18, we're going to look at the birth of Christ. Now, this is the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, how it came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, he was found to be with, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, the idea of engagement is different than our idea of engagement. We say a person's engaged, they plan on being married. But here a person 
was engaged, they could be engaged before they were born. Because marriages were pre-planned by the parents. Their parents decided who you were going to marry most of the time. And so there could be an agreement, you know, hey, Joe, I like you. I like your business. You seem like an upright guy. When you have a daughter, have her marry my son. Agreement? Yeah, it's agreement they're engaged. Now, Joe's daughters haven't been born yet. Aren't you guys glad you weren't born at the time? Who knows who mom and dad would have set you up with. So here comes a person's, you know, daughter's born. Okay, you're engaged to... You know, so-and-so. That was what engagement was, okay? But the idea of being pledged to or betrothed was different. That took place after that person became of age, and usually becoming of age was as early as 14, usually 14 or around 16 years of age. At that time, then, they became betrothed, and that meant that you are now legally married. You're not with your husband yet. You're not with your wife. There is no consummation of the marriage. There is no connection, no living together. But you are now in this betrothed state that would usually last for about a year. And if you were to get a divorce or leave, you actually had to get a divorce because you were considered married in this time even though you weren't living together. It was an agreement that was made. You're betrothed. You've got a year. It's going to be a year of preparation, getting ready for your big marriage. And then that day is going to come when you will be married. So it's in this stage, when Mary is betrothed to Joseph, that she's pregnant with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think, and I want you to imagine, throughout this little story that we're going to go through tonight, how it would be to be Joseph how you would feel being this man. Because Joseph's a good guy. He's not out to disgrace Mary. He's not out to shame her. He's going to divorce her quietly. She's pregnant. It's not my kid. I'm going to divorce her quietly. I don't, I'm not out to get her, but I, I can't have this. And that's the situation that we find Joseph in. Okay, in this time of marriage. And, and yet we know that Jesus is waiting for this time to be born. It's got to be unique. And so here comes the pledge to be married to Joseph. In verse 20 it says, But after he had considered this, Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Take note of how many times we hear the word dream with Joseph. This guy slept a lot. <laughs> and said, Joseph, son of David. We know he's the son of David. Now, this is connecting him to David. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so there is divine intervention that comes to Joseph in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. To take Mary as your wife. What's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You're going to call his name Jesus, Jesus, which is Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. You're going to give him this name because he's going to take or he's going to save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill 
what the Lord had said through the prophet. Throughout this gospel, notice how many times we're going to see as it was written or fulfilled by the prophet. Again, that is connecting us to something. It's connecting us to promises that God had made. It's connecting us to the story that God had laid out to the Jewish people. It is connecting Jesus to a history that belonged to him and to those people. It's giving context to who he is. And so this is written by the prophet. Verse 23, it says, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Verse 25 is real important. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So we see that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 7, verse 14. And it's important to notice that Joseph had no relationship physically with Mary until after Jesus was born. Now, we know that there was a relationship that took place with him and Mary afterwards. In other words, they had a normal marriage afterwards. We see this also in one of the Gospels where Jesus' brothers and mothers come to see him. And so we see that he had other siblings, but this wasn't until after Jesus was born. Now, why is this good news? That he had to be born of a virgin. What, what's the whole point of that? Why do you guys think? Why did he have to be born of a virgin? Was it just to say, ta-da, it's miraculous? I mean, is this like a magic trick? God wants to just say, ta-da, I want to, you know, pull a rabbit out of my hat. I mean, what, what, what's going on here? Why is this needing to be miraculous? Why is this good news? Because this was promised hundreds of years ago. Right? It's promised hundreds of years ago. Pure blood. Pure blood? Right. We know that the child's blood is determined by the father. That's just biology. So whose blood was flowing through Jesus' veins? His father's. Whose blood was going to take away the sin of the world? His father's. Good news. This is gospel. This is part of the story that we have and are celebrating. And so here comes Jesus, born of a virgin. Joseph has a dream, doesn't know Mary physically until after Jesus is born, is obedient. Now, what does Joseph's obedience get him? Look, let's continue reading and see. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judah, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and ask, where is one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, Herod, this is a character. Herod is a brilliant architect and he is just an evil man. He murdered his children in fear of them taking his throne. It was said it's better, it's Safer to be a pig in Herod's house than to be his son. Guy also killed a number of his wives. History has it that he stood about four foot four. He's a tiny guy, but he had a complex. And he, again, did incredible things architecturally, but he was just a brutal person. 
And so we're going to see his brutality take place here. It's thought that he had died of actually a venereal disease later on in his life. And so here he is, the, the King Herod, and these Magi come. Now, they are thought to come from the area of Babylon. Um, we don't know exactly where in Babylon or exactly where they come from. And this is just a mysterious thing because they're astrologers or astronomers. They're astronomers. They studied the stars and they see the star and they come to Herod, who is the king over this region. They want to know, hey, we saw the stars in the sky. Where is the king supposed to be born? Now, I want to take you real quick to a passage in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, and now remember, Daniel is in Babylon at this time. He, he is taken captive and he is raised up into this government. He goes through a number of kings and he has a number of dreams and interpretations. And in 7, verse 13, here's one of the visions that he has. In my vision at night, I looked... And there behold me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, glory, and sovereign power. All the people, nations, and men, every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, I believe he is clearly talking about Jesus himself. In chapter 9 of Daniel, there is a prophecy that is pretty intense that talks about when Messiah was going to come into Jerusalem. We're not going to get into it. We don't have time for it today. All this to say that there was talk about Jesus, who he was, and even when he was supposed to come on the scene back in Daniel's day. If these Magi came from that region. There was already talk of Messiah in a foreign land. Even though Messiah was to the Jews, there was talk of who he was around the world. And in the stars somehow, and we don't know how, it's not the astrology that we have today, but in some way they saw a star, they knew that Jesus had come, the Messiah, and they followed this star. They followed it to Herod. They want to know, we saw the star in the east, verse 2 it says, we've come to worship him. I think it's interesting that God meets people where they're at. That God reveals himself to people where they're at. To these magi, he revealed himself in some way where they were at. They come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. Again, here is what was written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And so we see again that there is prophecy. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 talks about this. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. 
after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped who? Him. Didn't worship them. Worshipped him, specifically. This is about Jesus. This is all about him. They worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream, there's a dream again, not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so, here comes these magi, wise men. Now we know from our you know, songs and things like that, we always call them the three kings. It never says that there were three. We don't know how many there were, but here they came, they presented these gifts, and these gifts are interesting. Gold is one that you would give to nobility. It's a sign of, again, Jesus's noble birth. It's the idea of him being a king. Uh, the incense, the frankincense that we're told that it was given was an incense that was used by the priests. There again, we have the king and the priests. And the myrrh is something interesting. It's actually an embalming fluid. Speaking of Jesus's death that would come. And so who he was was known mysteriously to these magi who came and they gave him gifts associating him with who he was and then they have a dream saying don't go back to Herod Herod's gonna kill the kid so they went back another way now we don't know exactly how old Jesus was at this time he could be up to three years old I know the manger scenes he's always a baby but we know from the time period that he could have been up to three years in age or so. Um, and so it's not necessarily this little baby that was there and the scene might not be exactly as the mangers and the songs that we sometimes sing. I hope it doesn't pop your bubble. Um, but it's still the Messiah. They worshiped him. They recognized him. Now in verse 13, we see that there's a change. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, sleeping again. Get up. He said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Oh my gosh. First of all, I take this woman who's already pregnant. And God, I believe it's from you. I'm obedient. I take her to be my wife. I don't divorce her. We have to go down to Bethlehem because there is this tax thing. We know that from Luke's gospel. And so I take this extremely pregnant woman down into Bethlehem. We get to Bethlehem. She gives birth. Here these magi come. Okay, great. We're finally getting to you know settle down. And now I get told in a dream, run for your life. Someone is trying to kill the child. And so now we got to go and escape to Egypt. Can I get a break? I thought, you know, I was obedient, God. I'm listening to you. Marry the woman. I'm raising the child. And now we got to run again. Doesn't it ever seem like sometimes you just can't catch a break? It's like, I was obedient, God. I did what you said. Why is it so difficult if I'm being obedient? Can 
You're waiting for an answer? I don't have one. Sometimes it just is. Sometimes it's just difficult. And we see Joseph having to run for his life because they're out to kill Jesus. Verse 14, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophets, there it is again, written from Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they were no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. <laughs> See, I, I, was, I never... I should never should have been woken all those years. I was dreaming. Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So now he gets up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned again in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he will be called a Nazarene. Now, why was he afraid of Herod's son? Well, Herod's son was as bad as him. Archelaus, when he became king, he was told by some people, you need to make the record right. There are a lot of people who your father did wrong. And they're really bummed with what happened to them. They were treated unjustly. You need to make things right for them. And so he gathered all those people. He said, well, get them. I want to have, I want to have a time where they, I can hear them out. All those who believe that my father did them wrong, have them come and have a hearing before me. And so 3,000 people came before him for a hearing, and he slaughtered them all. He said, we'll end this now. And one day he killed 3,000 people because they had a disagreement with his father. He said, no, I'm not going to deal with that. I'll just kill them now. Okay, these are the kind of people we're dealing with here. So you want to know why was Joseph afraid? That's why. He's one of these kind of guys. And so Joseph flees and they leave and they go instead into Galilee. And it says, so that was fulfilled that through the prophets. Now, this is interesting because now it's prophets, plural. It's not a specific prophet. And it's not a prophecy that we can specifically find anywhere in the Old Testament. But what we believe it's talking of is just who Jesus was going to be known as. In other words, those who were in the Nazareth area were of low esteem. And so if you were a Nazarene, you were kind of a person who came from the slums. He'll be known as a Nazarene. In other words, he's not going to be esteemed by people. And we know that Isaiah says that he will be a person of no recognition, no reputation. And so it's believed that that's what this is referring to. He is going to be a person that is not going to be of reputation. He's a Nazarene. Can anything good come out of that area? Anything good come out of Galilee? Come on. You know that. No prophet's going to be from there. 
Well, he is actually born in Bethlehem, but he associate, is associated now with these people of low esteem. Now, this is not the kind of introduction you would think a Messiah would have, is it? This isn't very spectacular. This is actually pretty turbulent. It's pretty difficult. And yet, this is how the Messiah was born. Think of your lives. What do you expect of your life? When things are going difficult, do you think things are going wrong? You see, because as difficult as everything was here for the birth of Jesus, God was moving all of history to accomplish this and to accomplish what was taking place from where he was born to what he would be known as to his escape in Egypt that he would be brought out of Egypt this is all part of God's plan and God is at work intricately in all that is taking place even though in the eyes of Joseph I guarantee you this is horrendous this is no cakewalk there's probably more than one time that Joseph said, oh my gosh, my life just stinks. This is awful. This is difficult. Oh, Lord. Now maybe he didn't. Maybe he had more faith than that. But if I was in his shoes, I can't imagine. And I wonder if so many times we are in places of difficulty and we don't realize that God is at work in invisible ways, doing things that we cannot understand to try and accomplish a work within our lives if we would recognize it. In the difficulty, someone's trying to kill you. Let's go, oh, we can't go back there. Someone evil is in that place. Oh, we got to move. You know, oh, we've got, my wife's pregnant. How did this happen? I've got to take her over here and now we've got to run for our lives. Oh my gosh, God, I thought you were for us. And God is for you, working all of history on your behalf, and you just don't see it. Incredible. And it should bring courage for us. Okay, I'm going to try and tackle chapter 3 real quick. In those days, John the Baptist. Now, we know John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was six months older from, than Jesus. We see this again in the other Gospels where uh, Elizabeth and Mary meet. And so those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judah and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the path for him. And so John the Baptist, he's, he's an interesting guy. Verse four says his clothes were made of camel's hair. And he had a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. He's a wild man, okay? This is the guy you don't want to the family reunions. You know, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's just one of those guys. He's not the kind of guy you want to go and just sit and have a cup of tea with him. Because he's in your face, he's kind of wild, he's kind of outrageous it seems. I mean, just from the little description that we have. And he is just one of these guys who there is no pulling punches with him. When he talks, he tells it like it is, and if you don't like it, that's too bad. The chips fall where they fall. This is how it's going to be. And he just comes out on the scene profound. Again, he is a precursor. He's fulfilling, again, what was talked about. 
in Isaiah chapter 40, preparing the way for the Lord, makes straight the path for him. And in verse 5 it says, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so John has this ministry of going telling people, you need to repent. You need to get right with God. Now he's going to the Jewish people who thought they were right with God. It would be like someone coming to us on a Sunday morning and saying, you guys all need to get saved. And you'd say, no, we are saved. We're Christians. You guys need to get saved. And I want you to have this recognition and understanding that you need to change what you're doing because it ain't right. And it was connecting with people because even though they were the Jewish people and they were supposed to be God's chosen people, they knew things weren't right. And so he gave them something that they could connect to that was a sign of repentance and it was baptism. Baptism was a symbol that you need to get your life right. It was a baptism repenting of your sins, different than the baptism that we're going to see takes place later on. And so, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was hap, hap, baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Here comes the religious elite, Pharisees and the Sadducees. You can kind of categorize them between the liberals and the conservatives. The Pharisees were the, the very conservative. They studied the laws. They were doing things by the book. They scrutinized the law and they wanted to make sure they followed it tooth and nail. There was no deviation and they were meticulous in their study of the law and their study of the scriptures and so they believed that they had the right way of understanding God. They, they were the ones who kept the law. The Sadducees were more the philosophers. They were the ones who didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in the resurrection, but they believed in God and they believed they had the understanding of God and so they would talk about the things of God but not in the same way that the Pharisees did. It's no different today. I mean, they're still conservative, they're still liberal, there's some that still follow the way, you know, oh, it's got to be this way, you have to have the, you know, element, we have to be fundamentally correct and all these things, and then there are some that are liberal that are just out there. And Jesus talks to both of them. And he doesn't say, hey guys, I'd like to sit down and have a talk to you about what you believe. He just starts off something simple, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do you think you can say yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so John comes on the scene, and he doesn't pull any punches. He lets them have it, and he tells them, you think you have everything together because your father was Abraham. It means nothing. Now, how should we take this? How do we interpret and apply this to us? You know, I think we can realize that 
The same thing is possible for us. We can have the same mindset that they did where they say, well, we're children of Abraham, we're of the promise. Or we can say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I name myself a Christian. I go to church. I go to church every Sunday. In fact, I go to church on Wednesday and Sunday. Thursday, Wednesday, and Sunday. I go to church Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes Saturday, and Sunday. I know I'm getting into heaven. Why? Because I, I, I do these things. I'm associated with these things. You know, I wrote my name on a card when I went in, up on the field when they had this, you know, big outreach. I, I went forward. I signed the card. So I'm in, right? I'm in. I must be in because I signed the card. And I go to church on Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes Saturday and Sunday. And John would say, if your life isn't met with repentance, you, you, who are you fooling? And I think it's a wake-up call for us. You know, we, we like to distance ourselves from John, this fiery guy, because it can be a little bit uncomfortable. And although John's methods were a lot different than Jesus's, it doesn't mean just because they were strong that they were wrong. There is a lot of truth in what he shared that should strike us and make us say, am I just playing a game or has my life changed because of Jesus? Because if I'm just numbering myself in with the group, then the same words that applied to the Pharisees and Sadducees apply to me. If I have a life that shows no change, then what's the difference? I can call myself whatever I want, a child of Abraham. Oh, I'm a Christian. It means nothing if there's not a change. And so there's to be this change in our lives that's to be met. Okay. We can do this. Verse 13. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, if it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At the moment, heaven was opened, and... He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son who I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, why did Jesus have to be baptized? And what's taking place here between he and John? John knew who Jesus was, but I'm not sure that John knew that Jesus was the Messiah at this point. There's some reasons to think that later on in some of the things that John says. But obviously, when the Father came down and spoke, there came this understanding. John would later go on and say that he must increase, I must decrease, a recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. But if, even if John knew Jesus, him saying, I, I need to be baptized by you, he knew that Jesus was the kind of guy that didn't need to be baptized. And so some question whether John actually knew that Jesus was the Messiah or not, but he knew that he was of the character that you don't really need this. I know what kind of person you are. I actually need that from you. I'm not sure. He might have had an understanding that I think you're the Messiah. Might have. We, we, I don't know. You can take which side you like or not. But why did Jesus need to be baptized? What was the point? Why did Jesus say, I need this. You need to recognize. Well, I think one of the biggest reasons is not only to affirm that John, what he was doing was right, but it was to identify with us. 
You see, what Jesus is now doing by being baptized, he is saying, I am identifying with sinful humanity. Not in the fact that I sin, because he never did, but I am identifying that I am here as you are. I'm identifying with you in your brokenness. I'm identifying with you with your struggle. I'm identifying with you in your separation from God. I know where you're at, and I am coming to get you out of this situation, not as God, but as man. And we're going to see that in the next chapter when we go through the temptation. But Jesus now is identifying with us as human beings. He is understanding who we are, identifying with us as a man. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets at many times and in many various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. There was a time when God spoke through miraculous things. God did miraculous things. That was his way of communicating to the nation of Israel. But now, instead of using the miraculous, I am going to be human. God in the flesh. God with us. This is the good news. This is the gospel. That God became a man and dwelt among us. Incredible. Incredible. What's taking place here is going to change everything. And we get to be a part of it. Okay, we made it through three chapters. I push it, kept you guys long. We're probably going to slow down just to let you know that I'm not going to do the next three chapters. But I wanted to get through these three chapters, especially the genealogy and those kinds of things. Some of the things I know you're familiar with, but we're going to spend a little bit more time on Jesus and some of the things that take place later on. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> God, bless your words. May they just cause questions in our hearts and minds of who you were, who you are, and how this gospel relates to us. God, that we are living in a, a rich history. Father, that there is such account of who you are and what you were to do even before you were born. God, that there is a story that we get to now step in, be grafted into, that is amazing. And Lord, may we recognize that, and may we see what our part is. Thank you again. Make your words alive to us as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.